0: This morning, but don't put me in the grave, okay? <laughs> don't, nobody put me in the grave. I'm, I'm gonna be all right. Well, didn't they sit down to begin with? Jesus, Jesus taught. He sat and talked, and people stood up. So, if you would, please stand for the next. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> oh. Warren's exactly right. I'm gonna be reading to you this morning from, uh, from John's Gospel. John chapter, uh, we're going to begin in John 14. What I wanted to do, uh, leading up to uh, Pentecost, is to read some excerpts from the Upper Room Discourse. And uh, I think it will be insightful for us to do so. The disciples were overwhelmed with uh, despair. And, and fear because they had spent the last three and a half years roughly with Jesus Christ and what an amazing privilege it would be to be able to spend all that time with God manifest in the flesh and he tells them that he's going to go away and they're just uh, for them they feel like it's the end of the road now it's easy to look at them and, and think well you know why are they so upset Because Jesus has been telling them all along that he's going to go away, and that he's going to die, and that he's going to rise again. But they just, for for whatever reason, they just could not process that. For one thing, they didn't want to hear it. Uh, They they had their own ideas about what the Messiah should be. And their idea was going to be a conquering military person, somebody that was going to come in and take over, uh, get rid of Caesar, and liberate Israel, uh, the nation. But... But God's mission was greater than just Israel. He didn't just want to just uh, save Israel. Jesus came to save all of God's people from their sins. And so uh, as we look in John 14, I'm going to begin with a very familiar passage of Scripture. And then we're going to to backstep just just a hair. In John 14, verse 1, Jesus says these words, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Amen. you believe that? I'll say that again. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whether I go, you know, and the way, you know. And Thomas says unto him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? And that provides the opportunity for one of the great I am statements of Jesus Christ in the gospel of John. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, No man cometh cometh unto the Father but by me. Do you believe that to be true? It's still true today. It's just true today as when Jesus first spoke those words. Nearly 2,000 years ago. All of the isms, all of the other religions, they are simply dead ends. They're dead ends. There are not many roads to God. There is but one way, Jesus Christ. Well, Pastor Larry, would you pray for for us this morning? Pray for me. Amen. I'm going to read a quote to you from D.A. Carson. It is Jesus who is heading for the agony of the cross. It is Jesus who is deeply troubled in heart and spirit. Yet on this night of nights, when of all times it would have been appropriate for Jesus' followers to lend him emotional and spiritual support, he is still the one who gives, comforts, and instructs. For well, they too are troubled, not because they are rushing toward pain, shame, and crucifixion, but because they are confused and uncertain of what Jesus means, and threatened by references to His imminent departure. However appropriate it may be to cite these words, do not let your heart be troubled at Christian funerals, and, and we do, you know, how many times have we quoted this at a Christian funeral? They were first addressed to disciples... I want you to feel the thrust of this. Who under substantial emotional pressure were on the brink of catastrophic failure. That's who these words were spoken to. I want to read that last phrase again. These disciples, they were under substantial emotional pressure and they were on the brink of catastrophic failure. I don't know if you've ever been there before, but it's not a fun place to be. It's not a fun place to be. At all, and they were, uh, they were on the brink of failure. You know, I, I often picked on the disciples. You know, in the garden, where it says that Jesus, uh, he comes and he finds them three times and they're sleeping. And I'd always, I'd always taken a real negative view toward the disciples, like, you know, come on guys, can you not just stay up for a little while? But but it's not as if they just ate too much turkey and dressing at the Last Supper. Uh, if you if you read Luke's gospel, and Luke's a doctor, by the way. Luke says that they were asleep for sorrow. They were mentally and physically, spiritually exhausted. I don't know if you've ever been there or not. Maybe some of you are there today. But I want to speak to you God's words for troubled hearts. Alright, to fully appreciate this we need to back up to chapter 13. Just a little bit. And in chapter 13 we're going to base this message around uh, basically three interruptions. Jesus is going to try to uh, deliver a message, and this morning we're going to look at. Uh, we may only get to two interruptions this morning and if we do, that's okay. I don't think you'll mind. But uh, the first interruption is going to come from Peter. But notice Jesus in verse, uh, we're John 13, verse 33. He says, Little children, uh, the Greek word there is technion, it's a diminutive of the word technon, which is children. Uh, remember, he says, He came to His own, and, and His own received Him, not. But unto as many as received him, to them gave he the authority or the power or the right to become the children of God. King James says sons of God, but it's technon, which is the children uh, of God. He says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, uh, whether I go, you cannot come. So now say I to you. Now the difference is, when he said this to the Jews, he told them, I'm going away and you're going to die in your sins. He's not going to say this to this group, because at this point, Judas has left the room. So Jesus is only talking to 11 loving disciples. It's amazing, after the resurrection, he only appears to loving faces. Mary Magdalene, John, Peter. That's why I believe in the pre-trib rapture of the church. Uh, He's not going to confuse judgment with a wedding. We're going to to marry uh, Christ. And I don't think he's going to beat his bride up before he takes her to be home but that's just that's just my thinking I don't break fellowship with anybody over rapture uh, you just reserve the right to be wrong if you disagree <laughs> with me alright little children he said I, I'm going away now in verse 34 he talks about a new commandment and he says uh, that you love one another as I have loved you now love was not new a new concept love was taught in the Old Testament too but it was the degree of love remember he had just washed their feet even the even the devil he had just washed the devil's feet. Think about that one for a minute. He had just washed Judas Iscariot's feet. He says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. In verse 35, he says, by this shall all men know uh, you, that you are my disciples, if you have all your doctrines straight. Is that what it says? If you can recite the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you can quote the Baptist Faith and Message. Is that what it says? What does it say? That is how people will know that we're Christians. I don't think there's anything that's more offensive to an unbelieving world than Christians who don't show love to each other. It's a stench in the nostrils of God, and I think it's a stench in the nostrils of of lost humanity. Nothing worse than church folk fighting. Nothing worse. And don't, don't get nervous. We're not fighting as far as I know. <laughs> I, you know, sometimes I preach proactively. <laughs> it's, not everything's reactive. Sometimes I preach proactively. But there ain't nothing worse than church folk fighting. That's why there's 100,000 Baptist churches in the South. Uh, it's not because everybody had a heart for church planting. It's because somebody got their feelings hurt. And they said, I'm going to take my ball and go home. And, uh, okay, I am meddling now. So let's just, let's just stop there. Well, Peter, in verse 36, he interrupts Jesus. You know, Jesus, he's not really interested in the New Commandment so much. <laughs> he's kind of like us. Uh, what, what caught his attention was the fact that Jesus said, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you can't go. And Peter says, um, Lord, where are you going? And he says, uh, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Now, we know Peter's going to die a martyr's death later on. Now, in verse 37, I want you to notice the irony here. Peter says, why can I not follow you? What's the word? Now. Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Now, he's got it all backwards, does not he? Do you see the irony here? Jesus is going to die for Peter. Peter's death's not going to do anything to affect salvation. Peter's not going to be the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God's got to go first. He has to die 1st read you another uh, quote from Carson. Sadly, good intentions in a secure room after good food are far less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. Um... So Peter says he's going to lay down his life for Jesus' sake. What does Jesus say to him in verse 38? Are you going to do this? And it's one of these barely, barely sayings, the truly, truly sayings. The cock shall not crow till you have denied me. How many times? Three. Three times. That must have been deeply troubling to Peter, don't you think? It was deeply troubling to him. Now he's going to give him a chance to make it right. That's what that whole episode on the beach is about in John 21, where Peter says, uh, Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? God will give you a chance to make it right. Now, let's consider Peter for a moment, shall we? Now, Peter was impulsive, for sure. He was always the first one to, uh, to say the wrong thing. Can you relate to that? I know I can. He often had foot and mouth disease. Um, But Peter was the leader of the apostles. His name's always listed first in in the name of the apostles. Judas is always last. Peter was the first one to make the confession of faith. Remember Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And what did Peter say? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus gave him a name change. He said, blessed are you, Simon. I'm going to give you a new name. You're not just Simon anymore. You're Peter. You're the rock. Uh, Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Moses and Elijah and Jesus and heard the voice of Jehovah. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That is incredible. And also, one other thing that Peter did, and I'll just quit bragging on Peter. One other thing that Peter did is uh, he walked on water. (laughs) For a little ways. How many times have you heard people say, well, there's only one man that ever walked on water. That's not true. There were two. Peter did. And I love it. When Peter began to drown, he prayed the drowners' prayer. Do you know the drowners prayer? Lord, save me. You ever prayed that prayer? You know, sometimes we don't have time for oh, thou that dwellest in the heavenlies. Sometimes you just got to say, Jesus, save me. Deliver me. And God will. The Bible says that he immediately uh, delivered Peter. So what was Peter's fatal error? Well, I believe there were two. Number one, he had too much confidence in the flesh. Paul says, wherefore let him that think he standeth take heed lest he fall. If you think that it won't happen to you, you are ripe for the picking. If you look at somebody else and say, well, I can't believe they did that. What you ought to say is, that could have been me. That could easily have been me. His other fatal error was he underestimated the power of darkness. Now Adam, earlier, he prayed. And he sensed in his spirit um, that, that you know, we needed to take authority over the enemy. Now, the devil would love us to be preoccupied with him all the time and see the devil under every rock. But I'm going to tell you what else you'd be happy with is if you just ignore him and treat him like he's a fairy tale character with a pitchfork and a red tail. Because he is an adversary. And he would like nothing more than to kill you, to destroy you, and to take your soul to hell if he could. All right, so let's move on to uh, chapter 14 now. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Literally in the Greek, it's stop letting your heart be troubled. Because obviously their hearts are troubled. It's not that he's telling them, don't worry in the future. He's saying, stop letting your heart be troubled. Did they have reason to be troubled? A lot of reason. I wonder if there'd be somebody here today Who's troubled? I felt this so strongly in my spirit today. Uh, all, all throughout the week, that somebody this week desperately needs to hear this message. That your heart is troubled. The Greek word for trouble is the word tarasso. Now, uh, Jesus had said earlier that he was troubled. There were some Greeks that came to visit him at the Passover, and he was troubled. He's, that signaled to him... That the time of his departure was near. He was troubled at the Last Supper. He says, one of you will betray me. He was troubled uh, in his his spirit. The word can mean anything from uh, when the angel troubled the water at the pool of Bethesda, same word. It can mean anything from agitation to uh, intense trauma. I believe the disciples are experiencing intense uh, psychological and emotional trauma at this point. Now, he says, don't be uh, troubled. And he gives two imperatives. The recipe, the remedy for a troubled heart is to believe in God. Do you believe in God? Otherwise, you wouldn't be here, right? And the other is to believe in Jesus. Do you believe in him? Now, what he's saying is a radical concept. He's saying, you can believe in me the same way you believe in God. So basically, he's telling them, I'm God. I'm no ordinary man. Now, verse 2, he's going to give us one more remedy for a troubled heart. And somebody desperately needs to hear this. Heaven is a real place. Heaven is a real place. It's described as a kingdom, an inheritance, a country, and a city. But I like how Jesus describes it it's home. Let that settle down on your spirit this morning. heaven is home. Now their concept of the Father's house up until now has been what? The temple. Remember when Jesus cleansed the temple? He says make not my Father's house a house of prayer. But now he introduces a new concept. Heaven The Apostle Peter says that while we're on earth, we're sojourners, we're strangers, we're pilgrims. Paul says we're citizens of heaven. Turn with me to Colossians 3. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good? You ever heard that? I think most of the time the opposite is true. Somebody read for me out loud and and talk loud enough to where the iPad will pick you up so our friends on Facebook will hear. Somebody read verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Believe that? That's where our minds are supposed to be settled. We are. Our problem is we're so earthly minded that everything around us shakes us and rattles us and troubles us. But we need to fix our minds on what's truly important. And that is we are not home right now. This is not our home. This is a hotel, and it's a rather cheap one. All right, let's go back to John 14. Now, at this point, I'm going to destroy a myth, and I apologize in advance, because I know somebody's going to get mad. You wondering what it is? yeah in my father's house are many, if you got a KJV, it's going to say mansion, doesn't it? Yep. It does because I've got one. That was a rhetorical question. <laughs> May not be the best translation. The Greek word is Monet. It's also the same word that's used in 14:23. James, will you read uh, verse 23, John 14:23? Abode, it's the same word. Now put mansion there and see if that makes any sense. Does it make sense that the Father and the Son are going to come and and make their mansion inside of you? No. The word literally means dwelling place or room. Some of you may have a a translation that says rooms. He's simply saying there's room in the Father's house for you. The idea is not that some people are going to live on on a vast plantation somewhere. And somebody else is going to be living in a shack, you know, in glory. But that, <laughs> their dwelling place, <laughs> H.T., don't get me tickled over there. I see you laughing. Uh, that, the idea here is that God has made room in the Father's house. You, Man. And the analogy is of a Jewish wedding. In a Jewish wedding, the, uh, the, the groom would be betrothed to the bride. And then he would go away. He would, he would return to the Father's house. And there would be an addition put on to the room addition to the house. Okay. Now I remember the first time I went back to my parents' house uh, after I had got on my own, and I was so disturbed because my room didn't look like my room anymore. <laughs> Any of y'all ever go through that trauma? Like, <laughs> wow. You guys moved on pretty quickly. <laughs> but, uh, but not so in the Father's house. In the Father's house, there's many rooms for us. Dwelling places. There's room. The idea here is There's room in heaven for you. Listen to me. There's a space in heaven reserved for you right now. But you have to come, by the way. He says, I'm going, I'm going to destroy another myth for you. Hold tight. Got your seatbelt on? I'm telling you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, we know Jesus was a carpenter, but he's not in heaven right now with a framing square. And Stanley Tools building your mansion. <laughs> in Matthew twenty-five, we're told that the kingdom of God is already in existence. It was prepared from the foundation of the world. So, what is He preparing? Like and how how are we going to get there? The way. the way. And for Jesus, what is the way? The cross, the tomb, the resurrection, and the ascension. That is the way that Jesus is preparing a place. And that's why Peter can't come. You see, Peter's not the Lamb of God, but the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's going to blaze that trail for us. He's the pioneer. He's the forerunner, the Bible says. The one who's entered in beyond the veil. Hallelujah. And because he's there, now we have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and a living what? Way. Y'all don't seem too upset that I shattered two minutes in one sermon. (laughs) Y'all are worried about how you're going to keep everything clean, right? Who's going to mow the grass? All right. Verse 3, he says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Now, we can get into arguments about the time of the rapture, but we're not going to do that this morning. We're not going to do that. But there's a a number of differences between the second coming and the rapture of the church. There are so many that the two cannot be described in the same event. In the rapture, he comes in the clouds. In the second coming, he comes to the earth. At the second coming, he comes with the saints. At the rapture, he comes for the saints. But nevertheless, he's coming again. Why is that comforting? Well, look around you. If you dare, watch the news for about 30 minutes. And you'll see that if Jesus doesn't come back, we're we're in bad, bad shape. Now here's the key. He says that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way... You know. And I think this is going to be my last point. What makes heaven heaven is not mansions, not crowns, not music. And by the way, we're not going to play harps all day long and floating on clouds. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus. We are forever occupied about a place where we should be occupied is with the person. What makes heaven, heaven is Jesus. What makes hell, hell is the absence of God. And that's why it would be unfair, listen to me carefully, this is why it would be unfair for people who don't love Jesus to be in heaven. Because for them, that would be hell, wouldn't it? If they hate Jesus, and most of the world does, by the way, it wouldn't be fair. Do you love him this morning? Do you love him? What makes heaven heaven is that Jesus is there. And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. I'm sorry, I've got to keep going. I can't stop there. And he says, where I'm going, you know, and the way, you know. How do they know? Because he's been telling them all along. For three years, he's been telling them. And he's just like, they're just like we are. Right over the head. He's been telling them for three years. I'm going to die. I'm the Lamb of God. I'm going to, uh, to leave this world. He's told them. You know, the apostles are not that different from you and me. They were not... People, people try to portray them as being, you know, just these bumbling boobs that just, you know, they believe everything. They were not. They were hard-headed and stubborn, just like you are. I should say just like we are, I'm sorry. That was a Freudian slip there. Just like we are. They were not illogical, irrational beings. Okay? And we get on Thomas's case. We're going to talk about Thomas here shortly. We get on his case, and we call him Doubting Thomas. Don't call him that. Call him Believing Thomas. You know, he has one of the strongest confessions of faith of any of the apostles. When he looked at Jesus, he said, My Lord and my God. Don't call him Doubting Thomas. Thomas, in, uh, I think it's in chapter... Oh, gosh, I can't remember, so I'm not going to quote it. But somewhere in John's Gospel, Thomas says that he's willing to go die with Jesus. He was not a coward. And by the way, tradition tells us that Thomas was a missionary, carried the Gospel to India, and died a martyr's death. So don't call him Doubting Thomas. So here's Thomas. Peter's interrupted him. And I'm glad, aren't you glad for these interruptions? Because they provided a teaching opportunity, a teachable moment for you and me. So Thomas interrupts him, and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? You think Jesus want to look at him and, and go, duh? You think Jesus wants to do that with us sometimes? I know he does with me. Sometimes I think the Lord just looks at me and says, Henry, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing? You you know that's not going to work out because that didn't work out the last time you tried that. (laughs) And I'm like, well, maybe it'll be different this time. (laughs) The definition of uh, of insanity, right? Let's keep doing that goofy thing you're doing and thinking that it's going to all of a sudden magically work out for you. Okay. So Thomas says, we don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. But Jesus says unto him, I am, the definite article is there, the. The way. Not a way, but the way. That's what the early church was called, by the way. They were not called Christians. The people that called them Christians were actually their enemies. Did you know that? To be called a Christian in the early church was actually an insult. The closest thing I can think of would be uh, calling certain uh, political folks deplorables. <laughs> it, it, was, it carried with it the same connotation, the Christ party. And some of y'all are laughing and others of y'all are not laughing because you're like, don't, don't, don't start that unit. <laughs> I didn't ask you if you were deplorable or not. I just gave you an illustration. But they were actually called The Way. Um, If you want some references, Acts chapter 9, uh, verse 2. Acts chapter 19, verses 9 and 23. Acts 22, verse 4. uh, Acts 24, 14 and 22. It was called The Way. And that's because of Jesus' statement. Now, Matthew 7, 13 and 14 describes two different ways. With two different destinations. There is the broad way, which is where most of the world is on. Most of the world is on the road to hell. Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many are going in that direction. That's my paraphrase. But straight is the way, and straight doesn't mean straight as an arrow. It means difficult, constricted. And narrow is the way that leads to life. And how many find it that way? Few. Few. Comparatively speaking, what is the way? The cross, the suffering, the agony. That is the way. What about the truth? Jesus is the truth. He didn't say, I'll teach you about truth. He said, I am the truth. Truth is always dogmatic. You know that. Two plus two is four. Now we live in a uh, we live in a culture that that wants to redefine everything. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm being honest with you. They say, "Well, my truth is what I identify as truth." But truth is objective and it's dogmatic. When you when you ask for direction somewhere, do you want truth or do you want? approximates. Now how many of if you have ever had your GPS lead you astray? I know I have. One, one time when I was working in a sales job, I was making a sales call in a brand-new neighborhood. And so the, uh, the neighborhood had not been plugged into the GPS system. And you know what Siri told me? Siri said the destination is about a mile away. Get out of your car and walk. I I lie to you not. Get out of your car and walk. Now that did not help me identify the houses. There was a specific house I needed to go to. And so they probably thought I was Jehovah's Witness that day, you know. (laughs) I did find my way. No thanks to Siri. Truth is dogmatic. All right, finally, the life. It's not just that he has life. He is life. John 1, 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In John 10, Jesus says this. He says, The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I'm come that you may have life, zoe, and have it to the full. Have it more abundantly. Do you want that life? He says in John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. John 20, verse 31, gives the stated purpose of the gospel of John. He says, these things I have written unto you, that you may believe in the Son of God, and that believing, you might have life in Him, in His name. God wants you to have life. And it's not just a quantity of life. It's not just living in heaven forever, although that's going to be great. But it's a quality of life here and now. We can enter into that now by the new birth. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 2 says that there is one mediator between God and man. And it's not the Pope. It's not Mary. It's not angels. It's not any other entity. There's one mediator between God and man. And that is the man Christ Jesus. Alright, so that leads me to three points of application, and I will make them very quickly. <clears throat> number one, remedy for, a remedy for a troubled heart, practical application number one, don't trust in yourself. Peter was looking, that's why all psychology, even though it's great, you know, I believe in counseling, but all psychology has inherent weaknesses because it always looks within. Your answer is not within. Your answer is above. Amen. You see, Amen. and most counseling—if uh, if I'm just being honest about it—most counseling is discovering how you can blame everybody else for why you are the way you are. Church, well, my mom didn't do this, and my dad didn't do this, and you know, I—I I didn't have opportunities that, that others had. That's what most counseling is. But Peter was looking within himself. And he thought he felt pretty good. He felt pretty self-righteous, didn't he? Lord, I am willing to lay down my life for you. This was not the first time Peter had trouble with the cross. You didn't realize that. There was another time that Peter had trouble with the cross, and he rebuked Jesus and said, You're not going to the cross. And Jesus looked at him and he said, Get behind me. Not Peter, Satan. That was, by the way, after he just changed his name to Peter. He went from hero to zero in 60 seconds but don't, don't laugh too hard because that could be you and me alright don't trust yourself number two trust God that's, that's profound isn't it simple John's gospel is the gospel of believe the word pistuo or pistevo uh, faith. faith or believe it occurs a hundred times in John's gospel believe 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 trust God are you, do you have a troubled heart this morning? Do you have some anxiety? Is there something that's weighing on your mind? You know what the remedy is? Believe God. I believe every day, every single day, you and I are presented with the option, are we going to trust God? Are we going to let our feelings dictate to us? Your feelings will lie to you like no one else. Your feelings will lie to you. You can't listen to them. Because there are times when you just don't feel saved. Can I get a witness? Sometimes I don't roll out of bed shouting hallelujah, I'll fly away. It's more like, oh me, than amen. Trust God. Number three, and this is my last point. Maintain an eternal perspective on things. You have to always... Don't ever, don't ever make te- make permanent decisions based on temporary circumstances. Whatever you're going through in your life right now, it didn't come to stay, it came to pass. Now, maybe you're, in a, you're thinking, well, things are going pretty good for me right now. Praise God. You're either coming out of a storm, you're in a storm, or a storm isn't coming. That's a fact. That's a fact, Jack. You're either in a storm now, coming out of one, or you're heading into one. I know, I've been in one for several weeks now. Lori will attest to it. We've had one thing after another. But that's not going to take the praise off my lips. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And we haven't been through anything on the scale of Job, but... You know, you're gonna have trouble. That's one promise you can count on. You say, I believe every promise in the Bible, every line, every promise in the Bible is mine. Yes, it is. Jesus said, In this world you'll have trouble. That's a promise. And Paul said, if you're married, you'll have double trouble. Don't look at your spouse. Don't laugh too hard. You gotta ride home with that person. (laughs) Maintain an eternal perspective. Hebrews 12, too, it says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. That's what gave him the ability to look beyond Calvary, Gethsemane, Calvary, the, the tomb, the wrath of God, was the joy that was set before him. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 18, I'm going to read this to you, and then I'm going to give you a, one more thing that I believe the Lord wanted me to share with you. Romans 8.18, Paul says, For I reckon, that's our Greek word, for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now I want you to think about something. What Peter did and what Judas did we're not all that different. You might even say that Peter's sin was the greater sin. Peter was the best friend of the Lord Jesus. You know, it's one thing when the devil, you know, you expect the devil to do what he does. But it's another thing when a trusted friend does something, isn't it? Peter was one of Jesus' best friends. He's always in the, the inner circle. And Jesus tells him, Peter, before the night's over with, man, you're going to blow it. And by the way, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they didn't all look around and point at Judas and say, it's him. They said, is it me? Is it me, Lord? What Judas did, he did out of unbelief. He was not... Judas did not lose his salvation Judas was never a true believer. That's what the Bible teaches. I can prove it to you. Don't, I'm not going into that. But Judas was never a true believer. And when the time came, and he realized that there was nothing in it for him monetarily, and, and in terms of power, and he realized Jesus was really going to go through with this whole cross ordeal, he cut bait. So, and it makes you wonder too, Were were the other disciples, after Jesus told Peter he was going to deny him, did they think he was the traitor? Maybe. I don't know. Judas, what he did, he could have recovered from. He could have. You know how I know that? Because Peter recovered. Peter recovered completely, didn't he? He didn't just recover Jesus said you're the head of the church man Amen. I mean Jesus is the head of the church but you're you wish Roman Catholic Catholic doctrine has ruined Peter for us and man Mary too Jesus told Peter he said you got the keys of the kingdom though I'm giving them to you if you don't believe it check him out he's the leader of the church in the book of Acts and when it came time for the gospel to go to the Gentiles guess who brings the message Peter He's unlocking the keys of the, of the kingdom, you know. But he's he's devastated. And Jesus looks at him, and I, and I shared this with some folks in the office the other day, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. It hit me like a ton of bricks. When Jesus said this to Peter, I'm sure he thought, as he was processing this, I'm probably going to go to hell probably what he thought Judas did go to hell now he's the only one we know that judgment has already passed on and I know this because Jesus said number one it would it would be better for him if he had never been born and he said in John 17 he said none of them that you gave me are lost except the son of perdition Judas died lost in Acts chapter 1 it says that Judas fell by transgression and he went to his own place read about it in Acts chapter 1 It says, Judas went to his own place. That word place is important. Because he didn't go to the place that Jesus prepared for the the 11. He went to his own place. Okay. So I'm sure Peter's thinking, oh man, if I'm going to deny... And Peter did deny Jesus. And he called down curses. It didn't mean he was using four-letter words. It means he was swearing with an oath that he didn't know Jesus. He was... He was denying and disavowing Jesus. Listen to me. This is powerful. Not because I'm saying it, but because the truth of it. Jesus, excuse me, Peter was denouncing Jesus in the most powerful verbiage possible. I don't know the man. I don't know him. I swear I don't know him. He was disavowing all allegiance to the Savior. But listen to what Jesus says. Remember... We suffer from chapter and verse division in the Bible. We suffer from it because that was not in the original manuscripts. And so we read, we open up John 14, let not your heart be troubled. And we don't understand the context of it. The context of it is Peter's just been told he is going to have a catastrophic failure. Catastrophic. Off the chart. And Jesus says to Peter and to the rest of them and to us who are here today, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms in the Father's house. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he says, where I am, there you will be also. He said, Peter, you're about to face your toughest challenge. But you can face it. Because you're going to go to heaven when you die. Hallelujah. I don't know what you're facing in here this morning. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, whatever the devil throws at you, the worst case scenario, the worst case scenario, when this is all said and done, I'm going to heaven when I die. And nothing, and I mean nothing, and I mean nothing, and I mean nothing, will ever separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not death, not life, not principalities, not powers, not angels, demons, nor any other creative thing. Things present or things to come. I like That's one of my favorite phrases. That means nothing that happens today and nothing that's going to happen tomorrow is going to separate me from the love of God. So, beloved, let not your heart be troubled. There's room. Jesus has made room for you. Now, you may be here, and you may be thinking, I don't know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I'm on my way to hell. And the truth is, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that is exactly where you're headed. And there's no recovery after death. There are no second chances after death. This is your opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. And the good news is that Jesus Christ is the way! It's not about you being a good person. It's not about you fixing everything that's wrong in your life because you'll never get it fixed. You'll die lost. You'll die lost trying to fix everything. You'll never fix it because God's standard is perfection. And the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, lived a perfect life. His life was perfect. To say that there are other ways to God... Is an absolute affront and a disgrace to say that God's only begotten Son endured the crown of thorns, the agony, the shame of crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection, and all that is just for nothing? Because I'm good enough to get there on my own? What an obnoxious sentiment. God. But how easy, how easy it is for you and me to get saved today? Living for God is hard. I will not tell you a lie. Living for the Lord is not easy, but it's worth it. But getting saved, Brother Ronnie, a dear friend of mine, Wayne Linker, he's gone on to be with the Lord. He he reminded me a lot of the Apostle Peter. He's always putting his foot in his mouth. But I remember when I got saved, and I thought, you know what? I've always thought this was so hard. It's just so hard. And Wayne said, Brother Henry, getting saved is as easy as falling off a log. That's it. Jesus has done all the heavy lifting. He's prepared the way. That's why Jesus told Peter, he says, you can't follow me right now because I've got to do this all by myself. The Son of God, he blazed the trail to heaven all by himself. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore in his body all of our sins on the tree, the cross, that by his stripes we might be healed. Would you stand?